Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce to you my special guest and good friend and business partner and someone whose journey has really touched me, Dan Lowe. Dan, welcome to A Current Life. Thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate your making the time to join us today. I'd like to dedicate this episode to your late father who passed away on Halloween to George. Uh, and uh, and I, I know he was a tremendous figure in your life, and so if you don't mind, I would like to dedicate the show to him. Uh, that means a lot, Jimmy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, for our listeners, uh, and this, co- this show goes out to 187 countries, Dan Lowe is the managing partner and founding partner uh, and one of the founding partners of Red Development. Uh, his development responsibilities include project coordination, financing, equity structure, government relations, uh, he's also a founding partner of Red Brokerage, which focuses on commercial real estate brokerage throughout the Midwest and shopping center development. And in the year 2008, he was awarded the Regional Entrepreneur of the Year uh, in Kansas City. He's made quite a name for himself in the business world, uh, but he's equally as blessed with his personal life and the obstacles that he has survived. I've come to know him and respect him a great deal. And for those of listeners, as you know, we've had from time to time people from all walks of life, and we've been able to learn about their journey, and the show is about the journey of life. And so we're very pleased and honored, Dan, to, for you to share your journey with us. Well, thanks. I, I'm uh, honored myself to, to be a part. I, I, as I mentioned to you, I saw the list of others that have had the, you know, the good fortune to be on your show. I'm not sure that I'm qualified or, or fit necessarily, but I sure am um, you know, honored to have been asked. Well, I appreciate that. Your, your, your life story has touched me, and uh, I want to start with the early years and a little bit about where you grew up and kind of what life was like as, as a little boy growing up and, and some of the things that, that uh, really uh, you went through uh, early on, really, when you were a youngster. So where did you grow up? Well, I actually was born and raised here in Kansas City, a suburb just on the southwest side of town called Olathe, Kansas. Uh, Olathe was about... Uh, 30,000 people when I was in third grade, and it's about 110,000 people today, so quite uh, amazing growth uh, over that period. Um, my father practiced law, and uh, Olathe was the county seat, which is really what put us in that area. 
And were there unique characteristics about your childhood, uh, things that you liked in particular or disliked, and and kind of uh, just maybe one or two little stories that that kind of you remember as you look back on your life? Well, yeah, I, you know, I was very blessed to have parents that, uh, for the most part, gave us everything we needed, and uh, frankly, even quite a bit of what we wanted. Um, you know, I have uh, four siblings, uh, three brothers, and a sister. And uh, we had um, a really uh, unique upbringing, I guess. My mother's uh, sister, who um, lived uh, in the outskirts of Olathe, she and her husband had eight children, and they lived on acreage uh, where they had quite a large garden. Uh, One of the things I recall uh, most uh, about my childhood is basically living uh, at uh, my aunt's house with all of her kids and my siblings and working in the garden. Uh, Mom and, and my aunt would can, um, you know, spend all day from 8 in the morning till 8 at night canning everything that we pulled out of the garden. But just such, um, you know, fun times, but also hard work. And I think, you know, that is certainly one of the experiences in childhood, in my childhood anyway, that instilled the work ethic that, uh, you know, that I've got uh, today. I was also a competitive swimmer and actually started swimming competitively at age six. And, uh, you know, swimming, as you know, was a pretty intense sport and can be even at, you know, at that young age. I think by age 10, we were practicing you know, twice a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon. And, you know, that too, I think, lent pretty significantly to, um, you know, to the work ethic uh, that, you know, was instilled in in us uh, growing up. But we had such fun um, times going to the, you know, the swim meets, both winter and and summer. And somehow, you know, my mom managed to figure a way to, you know, get me to Lincoln, Nebraska, or Bartlesville, Oklahoma, for swim meets when we, you know, she had four others at at home. So again, very blessed, and uh, you know, got got us most everything, all we needed, and most everything we wanted. Pretty well, as you as you know, uh, uh, you've actually passed that on, I believe, to your daughters. Correct? How many children do you have now, and and aren't they swimmers, or one or two of them swimmers? Yeah, um, I try hard to pass on. A lot of the experiences that I had um, as a child, but I have a ten-year-old daughter um, who we adopted after my health, um, uh, after my liver transplants, which we'll talk about here in, in a bit. And then, uh, although the doctors told me after my uh, health experience that I would not be able to have children, we were uh, surprised to find out that uh, almost two years ago, two years ago next week. Uh, uh, we uh, had a, another little girl, so we've got a, a, a two year, almost two-year-old as well as the ten-year-old girl. My ten-year-old is a very competitive swimmer, uh, regionally one of the best, uh, you know, best in the in the Missouri Valley, and uh, does extremely well. And my one-year-old, frankly, is going to be there. She's already uh, swimming in the backyard, and does a pretty good job at it. Well, we're we're going to talk, uh, as we said, as we go on a little bit. Uh... Also about your wife Peggy, uh, uh, who I've gotten a, a chance to to break bread with, and uh, and how uh, important a role she's played in your life, uh, and how special uh, the relationship the two of you have with everything that, that you've been through. Uh, you know what struck me when I when we met uh, was really 
the fact that I found you uh, very much at peace and, and very calming and very humble uh, with a lot of the things that you've done. You've built uh, real estate projects all over the country and certainly concentrated most of them in the Kansas City, Missouri area. But, you know, I think that there was a certain calmness to you, and I know that one of the things that I do want to touch on as we talk more about some of the things you went through was, you know, did your family, do you, did your parents instill in you a, a strong spiritual belief, a, a strong religious belief? Was What, what, were, what were some of the, the key ingredients that, that I would say from a character standpoint that really your parents taught you? Well, um, you know, as I mentioned, the work ethic, uh, honesty, and hard work, I think, are, are probably two of the most significant uh, characteristics they instilled, and they instilled it not by talking but by acting. Um, you know, they, they practice what they preach. Uh, the third thing is, is uh, and you, you hit it there a minute ago, is, is the, uh, the whole humility thing. Being humble was an absolute um, must in, 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 in our family. You know, my father did pretty well business-wise. You know, he was rich uh, not only uh, from a monetary standpoint, but even more so with friends and uh uh, you know, the whole while, uh, he, he remained very, very humble, and he instilled that in, in us, and it's, I think, a very, very important uh, piece of the puzzle. Life is about relationships, and in order to main, re, maintain relationships and build relationships and garner relationships, I think you, uh, it's just a lot easier when, when you're a, a humble person. Did, were you a competitive young man? Oh yeah. High school. Yes, uh, you know that. My father uh, was a trial lawyer, and um, he, he was about as competitive as they come. And, and uh, that is certainly something that uh, he taught us. Losing really wasn't uh, an option. You know, you you work as hard as you have to work to to succeed. Uh, just an interesting. Uh, a tidbit. Uh, my dad uh, was an entrepreneur. He had the opportunity to go to work for big firms uh, all the time, but he instead, uh, you know, kept his own small boutique firm in downtown Olathe. Uh, yet he represented any time a judge needed legal advice or another lawyer in town need, needed legal advice, he was their go-to person. Uh, that that uh, entrepreneurial spirit actually was uh, something that uh, we learned from a very young age, and uh, uh, to this date, my siblings, all all of us, own own and operate our own companies. Uh, in fact, none of us have really ever clocked in and clocked out with a, an employer. We've we've all uh, from the very beginning owned our own companies, and uh, I think that's pretty interesting. You know. Uh, uh, that he was, your know, mom and dad were able to, uh, you know, teach us that. So you're in high school, you're swimming on the swimming team, and you notice it around the age of 17 that you kind of feel a drop in your energy and stamina. Um, uh, is that about right, around 17? Yep. I was uh, 17 years old, 1980, and uh, we are uh, in a winter swim program in high school, and we were swimming, you know, pretty serious uh, amounts, probably fifteen, sixteen thousand yard day, and uh, you know that would make anybody tired. But I was able historically to you know, to make it through those practices uh, without too much problem. Uh, my energy level just dropped off completely, and I truly, you know, towards the end there couldn't even finish the practices. So 
share that with my mom and dad over Christmas break. Uh, we decided to uh, go to the doctor and see if they could figure out what might be going on. Um, so uh, you, I assume at that time, you go to the doctor and they do some tests, and what did they come back and tell you? Uh, they basically came back and said, we don't know what's going on. I had some uh, um, blood numbers that were out of whack. My liver functions were off a bit. My platelet count was very low. Um, and uh, they didn't know uh, exactly what to think. Uh, and uh, so they left it uh, that, you know, maybe after the holiday, if it didn't get better, uh, that they would, I would come back in and they would continue testing. Well, it actually got worse. Uh, so the day after Christmas, they checked me back into the hospital and did a, in a, an emergency, what they call laparotomy, where they just opened me up um, and, and uh, just started searching, just started looking around to see what they could find. And, and what did they find? Well, that, that's the point at which they diagnosed me with two things. Uh, one was... Uh, what they call universal colitis, which would be, you know, they thought it was Crohn's disease, but a, an intestinal disorder and, uh, and, the, and, and problems in my colon. And the second was cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, at age 17, clearly, you know, my cirrhotic liver was not due to drinking, um, but they could not pinpoint the cause of the, of the uh, cirrhosis. So from, uh, from there... Uh, they sent me to Mayo Clinic uh, where they did uh, more biopsies of my liver and more uh, research only to, uh, you know, really came out empty-handed, still couldn't find the, the cause of the, of the problem, the root of the problem. This was at a time, interestingly, Jimmy, where um, I think I have to look back, but maybe 1979, the summer of 1979, a doctor at the University of Pittsburgh by the name of Thomas Starzl um, had just completed his first successful liver transplant in the United States. So from uh, Rochester, Minnesota, where Mayo Clinic was located at the time, my father actually called Starzl in Pittsburgh and asked for you know a, a second opinion because the Mayo Clinic at the time was encouraging me to have a liver transplant. At age 17, you know, you're, you're indestructible. I thought, you know, there's no way. No, I'm not going to get a liver transplant. Everything will just be fine. Uh, Mayo was pushing it, but interestingly, Starzl um, took my side and said, you know, at his age, I would encourage you to see if you could uh, deal with the side effects of end-stage liver disease and push the transplant off as, as much as you can. At that time, the uh, Mayo, I think, had done three, maybe three successful transplants. Um, so at, I assume you've quit the swim team at this point in time and you're going through a lot of testing. How are your spirits at this point in time? And, and I assume uh, basically your friends and family, you know, are uh, brought into the equation. And, and what was their reaction to what was going on? Well, certainly as a parent, I, I can't, well, I can imagine now because I have children, but at the time I never really could put into perspective just how hard uh, it was for my mom and dad to deal with, you know, with all this. You never want to see your child going through things like this. But uh, it was absolutely the support of family and friends that, that kept me going and kept my spirits up. I frankly didn't quit swimming. Uh, you know, it's, it's um, one of the things that I was bound and determined to do was continue to lead as normal a life as possible as we, you know, figured out what, um, you know, what uh, the next uh, steps were. 
So uh, in February of uh, that year, so been, I guess, 1981, um, when the state swim meet occurred, and although I still had stitches from bottom of my sternum to just under my belly button, I swam the the state swim meet. I had qualified earlier in the year for state and uh, didn't do all too well, but I, you know, finished the race nonetheless, and it was a pretty significant uh, accomplishment for me because it told me that, in fact, with these problems, I could still, you know, I could still do, um, you know, what I set out to do. So you managed effectively for a few years uh, your disease, and you attended the University of Kansas, received your bachelor degree in political science, and then a master's degree in business with a concentration in finance. Uh, what exactly did you want to do with your life at that point, with everything going on? Well, out, outside of, you know, just surviving the, the liver problem, my goal was to follow in my dad, my uncle, and my grandpa's footsteps and practice law hence the political science um, degree. Um, and it was, uh, that was the plan all along until my senior year in college. I wrote my father a, a letter, uh, still have it to this day, which I cherish. And I said, you know, Dad, here I am, a senior in, uh, uh, you know, senior in college. I've got a political science degree. Uh, grade point average was nothing to write home about. In fact, I didn't write home about it. I tried to hide it <laughs> from my parents. And I said, you know, I've always been thinking about law school. Do you think I should uh, go that direction, or would you recommend something else? And my dad very promptly wrote back um, that, uh, you know, his feeling was that if I was, you know, adamant about law school, that would be fine, and he would be supportive of it. But in the same time, you know, his feeling was lawyers are a dime a dozen, and, and really, really good ones are pretty difficult to find. He expressed his interest in and his uh, love for commercial real estate. On the side, um, he did some development work on, you know, outside of his law practice, built a large mobile home park here, a few commercial buildings, and really had a passion for that. And uh, his thought was, you ought to go back and get your MBA see if you can get an internship at a commercial real estate company and figure out whether you like it or not. I did exactly as he said, and, and uh, it just it worked elderly. Now, in 1999, I guess you get moved to the top of the transplant list, and um, uh, that is uh, obviously something that isn't easy to happen. Uh, and, and when did you meet your wife, Peggy? Yeah, so... Um, when I was doing my internship at the Leo Eisenberg Company here in Kansas City, um, I was on the eighth floor of the building in the development group, and Peggy was on the ninth floor in, a, in the accounting group. And, and although we were going to KU together, we had never met each other at schools, only until uh, this internship opportunity that I, that I met her. Um, and we, we remained friends for, for quite a while, and uh, uh, it wasn't probably until um, sometime in the early, uh, I guess, late '80s, early '90s that we that we started dating. So um, I guess you get uh, um, a, uh, a beeper, or a beeper goes off, and it, I believe it was an article I read, December 28, 1999, and you're jumping on a flight to Pittsburgh for your first liver transplant. What was going through your mind at that time? It was, uh, you know, a combination of, of 
huge amount of fear and a lot of excitement. I still at, at age 36, so I, you know, I, I suffered all of the side effects of end-stage liver disease between uh, that diagnosis in 1980-81 time frame until 1996 when my beeper ultimately went off. And, you know, that, um, that time period where I was, again, bound and determined to live as normal a life as possible was full of some very challenging uh, times uh, in and of itself. One of, the, one of the biggest side effects of end-stage liver disease is what they call esophageal varices. Uh, where you basically have uh, you, you varicose veins are, are show up in your esophagus uh, when your liver is dying or damaged, you can't process the the blood through, and the blood has to back up to somewhere, fills your spleen, and then ultimately backs up into these veins uh, that lead through your esophagus. Once those get so big, they they leak and uh, cause you know internal bleeding. I'd taken a, a trip, it was actually a senior trip for senior my senior year in high school uh, with a buddy of mine and an uncle uh, to the big island of Hawaii, uh, and we went out to dinner and wasn't feeling so well, so I had them take me back to the hotel. By the time I got to the hotel room, I was feeling pretty nauseous. I got in the room and to the restroom in time to basically vomit. Uh, probably at least uh, 35 or 35% of the blood in my body. Uh, and this was, um, you know, my first uh, dealing with the esophageal var- uh, varices, of those varicose veins leaking. So um, yeah, I called my doctor back in Kansas City and said, what do I do? And he said, well, you know, you're going to bleed to death if you don't get to a hospital, you know, very, very quickly. I was on, you know, pretty remote island. Just think about 1981, the Big Island of Hawaii. The the ER at the hospital was really like a mash unit almost. It was a tent with a net, you know, that you a, a net door that you zip up and down to keep the bugs out, which didn't work all too well. And uh, basically, what they did uh, it was not quite this simple, but probably the easiest way to understand it is they they made me swallow a balloon. And then they blew up the balloon uh, and tied it to a football, tied the end of it to a football helmet so I wouldn't swallow it. And that balloon kept pressure on those varicose veins to keep them from bleeding. And then they air vacuumed me to Honolulu uh, to a, a better uh, medical facility where I sat for three weeks with a balloon down my throat and a football helmet on my head until they were comfortable that. They could take that balloon out, and the and the veins wouldn't uh, continue to bleed. So I got back to Kansas City and uh, established a plan with my doctor here to see if we could eliminate those varicose veins by cauterizing them. So every every other Friday, I would drive from Lawrence, where the University of Kansas is located, into St. Luke's Hospital here in Kansas City, and uh, he would stick a you know a basically hose down my throat and and he would burn those varicose veins uh, basically burn them so that blood couldn't flow through them any anymore and uh, we did that for probably a I don't know two or two and a half year period before he got to my stomach and and he said basically this is our last treatment 
because I can't cauterize veins uh, once you know we leading into your stomach we can't go there so if we have bleeds from here out you know we've got major problems and you'll you know have to have an emergency liver transplant and uh, it's just unbelievable it's why I'm a firm believer you know in a higher being um, somebody intervened and at that point in time I never had another bleed uh, so that was probably, that would have been probably 87, 88. Uh, I was done with the cauterizations, and I never had another internal bleed from there. Uh, towards the end, though, probably starting in 94, 95, um, I suffered uh, another one of the side effects of, of uh, end-stage liver disease, which they call encephali- encephalopathy or encephalitis, where um, the ammonia... Uh, that is in your blood that your liver typically filters out uh, because my liver was so dead uh, it wasn't filtering out the ammonia which was then running through my brain so you know I would uh, I was still going to work at the time but I would have to call my wife for directions home from the office you know because I just I didn't you know didn't know where I was I couldn't uh um, you know, I'd back out of the driveway in the morning and I'd have to call her and ask her if I was going to work or coming home. You know, she'd wake up at 3 in the morning and I'd be wandering down the middle of the street with my boxer shorts on. It was a really, really bad. Uh, how, did, how did Peggy handle all this? I imagine, you know, I mean, what I found really uh, uh, unbelievable was you went through so much, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners have had their own experiences, and you know, we're given this body, and we live in this body, and we have this great depth and soul and spirit that, that kind of takes us through this journey that we're on. And when it breaks down, I'm sure we'll talk about that in the in the next segment, but, the uh, you know, you have to deal with that on a minute-to-minute basis, and there you are in a relationship with Peggy, and, you know, how did she handle all this? Well, but for her, I wouldn't be here today. Um, you know, she just the most solid... Um, logical, bright person that I've ever met, and you know she handled it just amazingly. She she never got upset. Um, you know she never ever said why me. Uh, she was just always very positive and encouraging, and uh, did everything she could to really help me fulfill my goal, which was to lead as normal a life as possible. I mean, anybody would tell you there's no reason in the world I should have been going to the office. You know, um, yeah, I couldn't even figure out whether I was going to work or coming home, and I was still negotiating leases and, you know, buying real estate. But uh, my wife was very supportive of it, and, and frankly, I think it's part of the reason I was able to, to get a 16-year stent between diagnosis and transplantation is because of the support that she gave me. Well, I know um, we're, we're going to take a break in a minute. Uh, okay. We've obviously, as our listeners know, we, we, we seldom take, uh, I mean, this particular show, we really wanted to limit it to one break. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors, Smart Water, uh, Wild Things Gear, and AdSpace Small Network uh, for allowing us to do that because they support the show and have been great sponsors, but I really felt that our audience needed to hear this unfettered without a lot of interruptions, and I want to, when we come back, talk about the liver transplants you went through. You actually received, I think it was three liver transplants, uh, two of them 
Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that specifically. And then, really, what you experienced spiritually uh, on whatever level you're, you feel good enough to talk about it uh, so that our listeners can understand uh, what you came away with and what makes you uh, such a special person today and, and why I wanted to have you on the show. Um, it's Jimmy Gould. Uh, I want to thank our listeners. Uh, this is uh, Current Life. Our special guest is Dan Lowe. Uh, my friend and, and special guest this week, and uh, we'll be back to, with you in a minute. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. At Wild Things, we've been making alpine clothing and packs right here in the USA since 1981. In fact, we began by stitching together extremely light climbing gear that guys on the mountain were trying to make on their own. It was a big deal in 1981. Making Wild Things the gear of choice for some of the world's most demanding alpine climbers. Of course, the climbs and the climbers are now the stuff of legend. Inspiration for the next group to realize the freedom of moving over rock and ice in a fast and light way. The rest, three decades of elation, misery, epics, and near misses, we put back into everything we make. Light, durable, functional, packable. Wild Things gear is made and tested by those who live in it. Available exclusively at wildthingsgear.com. Stay wild. Very rarely does our news media spotlight some of the good things that are happening in our world. For more of these good stories and the people that are creating them, tune in to Bread for the Journey with Mariana Cacciatore. Whether these good acts stem from personal tragedy or just a desire to help out and make this a better world in which to live, you'll find inspiration in every week's program. Connect with those that are doing something great for a change. Listen for Bread for the Journey, Saturdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, this is Jimmy Gould. Uh, welcome back to A Current Life. I'm here with my special guest, Dan Lowe. Dan, uh, I had asked a question earlier a little bit about the uh, flight on December 28, 1999, when your transplant beeper went off and you were 
asked to come to Pittsburgh for your first liver transplant. What was that like, that experience? As I said, you know, I think it was a really a combination of uh, fear and, and excitement, uh, but mostly excitement. My, uh, you know, all of those side effects that I had mentioned uh, were peaking uh, at Christmas of 99. I was really having an extremely difficult time uh, remembering things, and, and I mean, it's just really uh, tough. And, uh, you know, I talked earlier about relationships. Life, you know, relationships in life are so important. Um, I have a cousin that is a physician actually there in Cincinnati. Uh, she was in Ro- Rochester, New York at the time, but she uh, went to medical school with the head of the transplant program at Pittsburgh at the time. And um, we contacted him on, on Christmas Eve of 99 because of the things that were going wrong. And um, he encouraged us to go to the ER here in Kansas City. Um, they basically said, we can't do anything. We don't know what to do. It's way out of our league. Uh, so um, the doctor uh, basically helped. I was not at the top of the list, uh, but he helped us receive our liver, probably my liver, sooner than we would otherwise have. Uh, Because he knew what was going on, uh, he managed to get a split liver for us. Uh, Liver, you know, is a regenerating organ. So when they split the liver, um, they can give that individual at the top of the list uh, one lobe, and then they can use a little discretion in where the second lobe goes. And uh, the doctor, uh, because of the relationship, uh, it helped me get the um, uh, get the second lobe, even though it, again it wasn't at the top of the list. But the day that my beeper went went off on on December 28th, I was actually uh, on the floor of my kitchen at home negotiating a lease with the Gap um, to uh, occupy space in the shopping center that we were building at uh, in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. I would hate to see what that lease looks like today. <laughs> they probably have it annual kick-out rights and everything else because there's no no reason in the world I should have been doing it, but I I was. Uh, I kept getting a call waiting on my cell phone, and I ignored it and ignored it. We got uh, calls at the house, and uh, we ignored those as well. Finally, my wife's cell phone rang upstairs, and it was Pittsburgh. They said, uh, this is Pittsburgh calling. We've got a liver for you, but we need to see the whites of your eyes inside of three hours or it's not yours. Uh, we had a, a plane on standby, so we called the pilots. And they met us at the airport here in Kansas City. My wife, my cousin, the physician, and I hopped on that plane, and with literally about 10 minutes to spare, uh, they saw the whites of our eyes at uh, the University of Pittsburgh in, uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, by the time I, between the time I walked in the door and the time I was under the knife, it was probably, I'd say, less than two hours. So I didn't have a lot of time to really think about what was, what was happening. Um, but uh, uh, I guess about 16 hours later, the first surgery was about 16 hours. Um, I uh, came out of surgery, uh, but but didn't wake up, and uh, they were doing everything that they can or they could to figure out what the problem was uh, and, you know, why I wasn't waking up. And they finally made a call to the hospital uh, 
where the other lobe of the liver went, only to find out that the liver that I had received was bad and that the, the young baby that received the other lobe had not uh, survived the, the surgery. And uh, so they did some uh, bi a biopsy on the liver and, and learned that, in fact, it, it was failing inside of me. Um, they basically, uh, they didn't have time to do pathology on the liver when it got to Pittsburgh, but uh, it gave me E. coli and, um, a, and a string of other uh, viruses that basically uh, you know, was very difficult for my body to handle. So they put me at the top of the list on January 3rd of 2000, so 28th was the first one. On January 3rd, of, or I guess January 2nd of 2000, I received my second liver transplant. Uh, the second liver trans, uh, second liver seemed to be good and seemed to be working okay, but um, it uh, basically my body killed the second liver uh, because of the uh, the E. coli and other things. Um, after that second liver transplant, they literally didn't close me. They, they, uh, they just kept my, my incision open in order to help my body fight the, uh, the viruses. So they would take me down to the operating room every day and they would basically pour liquid soap inside my incision and then like a car wash they would just spray out my insides so that uh, you know they could at least do anything that they could do from the outside to help. Now, help were, you, were you in um, a coma at this time? Are you awake? Are you, do you know what's going on? I know that after the second one, your body kind of went into septic shock and, and uh, the infection was there and your kidneys stopped working. And isn't that when you basically uh, uh, flatlined three yeah. times? Yeah, so the second... The second uh, day after my uh, second transplant, so that would have been the 4th of January, um, the doctors encouraged my wife to get out of the hospital. You know, she had been there, you know, day in, day out since we arrived. So they went out to dinner. Uh, while they were out to dinner, um, I went into septic shock, uh, and uh, that's when I lost function of all... Um, organs and, and flatline for the first time. Um, I do recall uh, laying on the bed and, uh, you know, obviously I was in ICU and uh, uh, remember a lot of commotion around me. And then um, all of a sudden, I, I see, and you and I have had this conversation, I see like just the white, the, you know, nothing but white. And I'm above the bed now looking down at everybody scrambling you know they've got me and my body temperature was 107 and so they've immediately got me in a in an ice bath and and uh you know they're doing everything they can to get dialysis going and, and uh you know bring me back and uh, i don't recall exactly how long i was down but it was for i don't know in excess of five minutes probably when when that is happening, as best as you can recall, you're obviously more or less out of body at that time. Your spirit, or however you refer to it, is 
is aware of what is going on, but you're not feeling pain or you're not, you're looking down and, and I guess you're in between life and death or whatever we call it. Is that I guess, how do yeah. you describe it? Yeah, I think that's, I think, you know, it really is hard to explain because I don't know exactly what it was. I do know that I wasn't feeling pain. I do know that I'm watching everything in the room go on, so I'm outside of myself, so to speak. And uh, and then, uh, I don't know, five or seven minutes into it, I'm, not, I'm no longer looking down. The white's gone. And um, I guess, you know, I was alive. Again, I was in a coma. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know exactly uh, when, what went on. When the, other, when, and I, I was no longer over the bed. When the light uh, comes in at that point and you're over the bed, do you remember vividly seeing anyone in terms of coming from the other side? Uh, do you no, recall any of that? No, but this is uh, also this is another interesting uh, aspect of this whole experience. So about a day and a half later or so, um, they come in and they uh, the the doctors basically the this, the psychiatry department comes in and talks to my wife and and they said basically they were. They were preparing her for for me not uh, to live, and they just said, "Look, we just want you to know that when the human body experiences such impact like that, that it's highly unlikely that um, you know that they would survive. But uh, you know, we want to do everything we can to help in keeping Dan alive. Uh, you know, I mean, we're going to do everything we can. And one of the things that's really important um, is if 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 he starts talking to anybody that is deceased, you want to stop him. You want to make sure that he doesn't continue the conversation. And, you know, it's, I know this sounds crazy, but if he sees someone from the other side, it could mean that they're coming to get him, and you don't want him to do that. And it's just so amazing because literally less than 24 hours, and I'm in a coma. I don't, I mean, I'm asleep. But I distinctly remember talking to my wife and saying, "How long? How long uh, ago did your mom die?" And uh, she's like, "Are you talking to my mother?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm talking to your mom. She's right here. Can you see her?" And uh, she's like, "Start shaking me. You cannot talk to my mother. Stop talking to my mother." And uh, you know that went on for a short period, and then her mom went away. Uh, you know, and I'm, you know, here today, you know, the shrinks thing because of it. <laughs> she she stopped me from. Uh, Had her mother passed away previous yeah, to this? Obviously, yeah. Peggy and I actually got married on the day of her mother's funeral in uh, wow. 1996. We had it uh, we had it planned and decided to go ahead with it and end a sad day with a happy experience. Well, you go on in, in January 9th of uh, 2000 and receive actually a third liver transplant, which was successful. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is something that the doctors were very reluctant to do. Uh, you know, it, I think ethically they felt like it could be a waste of a liver because in their mind the human body really shouldn't or can't withstand three back-to-back liver transplants. So my second transplant on January 2nd, um, you know, they, there were a lot of complications. I died three times, you know, uh, that night that I went into septic shock and, and into the next day. 
uh, doing dialysis. I mean, they're doing everything they can to keep my my body uh, functioning. And uh, the doctor just said, you know, with you're immunosuppressed, you got E. coli, so your your immune system is not able to fight, you know, the viruses that you've got. We're doing everything we can by leaving him open and washing out his insides. But you know, I think if this liver doesn't take, that's just all we can do because it's highly unlikely that a third one will be successful. And if we just you know toss a third one into you and you die the next day, we're going to get a lot of heat from you know others on the list and whatnot. And Peggy said that every day from you know probably the fourth of January till the ninth of January. They would walk in the group of doctors and they'd say to themselves, "What do we do? You know, he's not dead yet. What what can we do?" To I mean, you know, there's just every day would thought that I'd be dead. In fact, um, you know, the University of Pittsburgh is a teaching hospital, and uh, Peggy said that the group of students came around. I don't know, it was probably the fourth or the fifth, and they showed uh, the chart to the students, and they asked, "You know, what would you do in this instance?" And they all, you know, with this chart, what would you, you know, what's the next step here? And they thought that it was a trick question that because they, you know, thought for sure that I was dead, you know, that I hadn't survived, you know, everything that they were reading about it. What what was the hardest part of all this for you as you come through it and you're now, well, really 12 years uh, since that time uh, when obviously you've experienced something most people never have experienced and, and you have seen things that most people will never see. It's those are the questions we all wrestle with every day when we lose a loved one, or you know, we wonder what this life is all about and what the meaning of it is. Which is something I'll ask you at, towards the end of the show. What was the single hardest part of all this for you? You know, I think uh, it, it was probably the the recovery, the the rehab. Um, it was so difficult. You know, I, I went into the hospital. I weighed 175 pounds. Within two weeks, uh, I, I, weigh, I, I atrophied. Within two weeks, I was 117, down from 175, that much weight in a two-week period of time due to atrophy. After my septic shock, I got up to probably close to 300 pounds, you know, due to my organs shutting down. I just uh, swelled up and retained water. Um, They had to put braces on my feet because I was laying in the bed so long that you can get what they call foot drop, where you lose your ability basically to to lift your feet. You know, when you walk, you basically, you know, pull your toes up, you know, in order to not trip over your toes. And, uh, and so those braces, uh, uh, they, I had to put on a pair of tennis shoes in order to put the braces on. The shoe size was 13. I wear a, I wear an 8, but I was wearing a size 13 shoe after septic shock because I, I had ballooned up so much. And, um, you know, so the, the recovery from all of this, you know, the foot drop uh, amongst many other things was very, very uh, difficult to deal with. And again, but for Peggy, I mean, every single day she just lived and, and breathed uh, my my uh, rehab, and it's the reason I, I was able to 
you know, to get through it, I think. You know, I, I read several quotes uh, when you were given the award as Entrepreneur of the Year, and, and a couple things. Uh, obviously, you and Peggy have been incredibly blessed. I know that giving back is extremely important to you and Peggy, and Gift of Life is an organization very close to your hearts. If you could just say maybe a few things about the organization for our listeners that are not familiar, maybe they're contemplating whether or not to be an organ donor. And you're quoted as saying the Gift of Life does so much to raise awareness about organ donation. The reason that you are here today is because an 18-year-old signed that line on the back of his driver's license, and it is tragic that he died, but his heart and lungs saved people in Florida, his kidneys saved people in Pennsylvania, and his liver saved my life. Yeah, it's uh, so the gift of life. Their their mission is to raise awareness in elementary, uh, middle schools and high schools. And I've just met with them this week. Actually, I think they they said they visited. Let's see, it was 420 schools in 2011. Uh, and all they talk about is the importance of organ donation, and you know. The, the selfless act of, of giving your organs is, is you know, just a, such an amazing, amazing thing. But this 18-year-old boy um, was, like you said, the reason that I'm here today. He, uh, you know, when the doctors decided on the 8th of January that under a very, very certain set of circumstances they would give me that third liver, uh, one of the, one of the, conditions was that the, that the organ be 20 years old or younger because they needed a strong, very healthy uh, organ. It needed to be within a very, very close proximity to Pittsburgh because they didn't want to have happen the third time that happened the first time where the organ was out of the deceased body too long and, and it you know, created uh, issues. And, uh, you know, so, but for Jerry... 18-year-old roofer who who fell, you know, from from his roof and, and died. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't be here today. So you know your um, uh, your parenting style with your little girls, Kate and Libby, and and your protective parents, uh, I'm sure, and 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 also how all of this really has ex- has affected you in terms of how you parent, how you now approach work, and how you find. Uh, a balance in your life. Uh, I, 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 I'm going to read one thing, and then I'd like you to kind of maybe address those things. You, you were quoted as listing your top ten things that you know for sure. Uh, you started with number ten was tap the knowledge around you, and you referred to Kansas City as remarkable in this way because it's full of mentors around every corner on your journey willing to help. Number nine, never be greedy. It never hurts to leave a little on the table, especially for the relationship. Number eight, always deliver difficult or bad news in person because people will never forget the way you took care of the relationship, not only in the good times but especially in the bad. Number seven, choose your partners wisely and always choose the best you can find. Number six, don't be afraid to hire people who are smarter than you. And when you do, number five, empower them. Be sure they have the tools and the latitude to succeed. Number four, don't sweat the small stuff. We have all experienced the big stuff. Allow that to provide the perspective necessary to not sweat the small stuff. Number three, have fun and love your work. Number two, never forget the importance of maintaining a sense of humor. 
And the number one thing is that you know for sure is listening to your parents is a really smart thing to do. Everything that I have learned in my life that is big, important, and meaningful is because of something they have taught me along the way. I, I was really taken by those ten things, and I want to know how this and your journey and what you went through, because as you listen to the details of it, it's staggering uh, how it's changed your life and, 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 and how you've related to your children and your friends and your family and everything else. Sure. Um, you know, I don't know if it's unfortunate or, or not, but the thing that I have seen is that it often takes a, a crisis in a person's life to help them gain the perspective they need to behave like a, you know, a prudent human being. And certainly the crisis that I experienced in my life at age 36, having three you know, back-to-back liver transplants over a two-week period of time, it, it changed my perspective and solidified you know, my perspective for the rest of my life in, in such a, a great way. Number one, it, it made me firmly believe in, in, a, in a higher being. There's no way that I would be alive today but for uh, God's intervention. And, you know, there's just too many times, no one, you know, to die, I mean, literally to die three times um, and, and uh, you know, just experience everything I experienced it is... But, as you, but for that higher being, it couldn't have happened. Uh, I agree with you on that. As you look back on your journey, I guess I'd like to ask you what I've asked all of our guests that we've had previous to you. And, and asking you, it seems to be a little bit strange because you certainly have witnessed it firsthand, but in the, couple, in the minute or two we have left, what do you feel is the meaning of life? I mean, you've seen and heard, we've all heard your story now, and, and one that's filled with miracles and, and phenomenal phenomenon, uh, what do you feel is the meaning of life? Wow, that's a tough one. <laughs> I think uh, I think that life is really all about giving back and touching people in a, in a meaningful way. I mean, my goal with my girls, my goal at work, uh, my goal in every relationship I have is to, is to be able to give the people around me, um, you know, give them something back, whether it's a piece of knowledge that I have or it's a, it's a, a willingness to take a phone call when, when they need someone to talk to or it's, you know, just a, a simple hello, uh, you know, when they're down. Giving, giving back is so critical. I think that's, to me, probably the most important thing. Well, I, 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 our time is up, and, and you and Peggy are both inspiring as a couple. You as a person have had a massive effect on me in just a short period of time. I want to thank you, uh, Dan Lowe, for sharing your journey with us. Uh, we're very appreciative that you were able to join us today and inspire our listeners with your experiences. Uh, I personally, uh, uh, you, you've made a difference in my life in a short period of time. I want to thank our listeners for turning into a current life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Uh, This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off. And please join us next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern for our next episode. Until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with much hope, inspiration, great health, and success. And, Dan, I can't thank you enough for 
your friendship and for being on the show. Thanks for the opportunity, Jimmy. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, our listeners. Until next time. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.